To my right and your left, we have a cross that reminds us of the cross of Jesus. Could you all take just take a moment and look at that? And then I'm going to ask you to close your eyes for the next couple of minutes as we try to make an image here. When Jesus died on the cross, we read in Luke uh, chapter 23, verse 49, and all his acquaintances and the women who had followed him from Galilee stood at a distance watching these things. Imagine, imagine that you are there. Keep your eyes closed. And imagine how this event utterly changed their lives and knitted them together forever. We know for certain that some of their lives were, in fact, knitted closely because there's another passage in John that provides us some more information. And in John 19, starting in verse 25, we read, Near the cross of Jesus stood his mother, his mother's sister Mary, the wife of Clopas, and Mary Magdalene. When Jesus saw his mother there, and the disciple whom he loved standing nearby, he said to her, Woman, here is your son, and to the disciple, here is your mother. From that time on, the disciple took her into his home. There is something about the cross of Jesus that knits us together in a way that we can never be separated. And that's going to be the theme for this morning. You can open your eyes now. We're going to be in 1 Corinthians. And by way of introduction, uh, Corinth was a trade center, and it had two harbors facing to the east and to the west. And so the harbor facing, harbor facing toward the west, of course, pointed toward Rome, and uh, the harbor facing uh, toward the east uh, pointed toward Asia Minor. And so, and so, a lot of a lot of trade, a lot of stuff pass through Corinth each, Corinth each day. And therefore, as a city, it was cosmopolitan. And as a city, it was sophisticated. And I'll kind of put that in air quotes for you. Paul spent about 18 months in Corinth around AD 50. And that, of course, is where Paul was when he wrote First Thessalonians, to make a connection with our prior sermon series. And while he was in Corinth, along with uh, Priscilla and Aquila, he planted a church there. And then if we fast forward a couple of years, that was during his second missionary journey. Now near the beginning of his third missionary journey, and we're looking at maybe A.D. 54 or 55, uh, Paul was in the process of spending several years in Ephesus, and that is where he was when he wrote 1 Corinthians. Now, 1 Corinthians is the first letter of Paul in the Bible, but it isn't the first letter that he wrote to Corinth, because 1 Corinthians 5.9 mentions a previous letter. 
but it's the first letter we have. This morning, we're going to be looking primarily at chapter 2 of 1 Corinthians. However, we will also be providing some background from chapter 1, starting in verse 17. This section in 1 Corinthians is preceded and it's preceded and is followed by sections which the ESV calls divisions in the church. So Paul is going to be addressing that larger topic, but he's going to take some time out for an excursus, and he's going to be laying a foundation. And the foundation that he's going to be laying is a foundation of what kind of wisdom is it that is saving wisdom. What wisdom saves and what wisdom doesn't? That's where we're going to be this morning. And the excursus, this, this little section in the middle, is important in itself because it teaches that very question. In the broader picture, of 1 Corinthians, this is not the only time that Paul does this. Famously, 1 Corinthians 13, uh, the chapter all about love, that is bookended by two chapters, chapter 12 and chapter 14 in 1 Corinthians, which are about a very contentious topic in Paul's day and even to a certain extent today, it's about, it's about spiritual gifts and what role they should play in a church. And Paul got into that very complex topic, and he took time out and talked about love. And so what he's doing in the passage this morning is he's going to take some time out, and he's going to talk to us about the wisdom that saves. And that's what our passage is going to be about this morning. I'm going to start in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 17, and I am going to read all the way to the end of chapter 2. It's going to be, there's 30-some verses there. It's a complex passage, but we're going to read it first because God's Word is what's most important, but we're then going to step through it uh, more slowly and look at it passage by passage and look at Paul's overall logic and most importantly, the overall message of this passage. And then we'll conclude with several applications. So here then is the word of the Lord beginning in 1 Corinthians chapter 1. I'll go ahead and switch mics here. Verse 17. For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to those who are being saved it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, and the discernment of the discerning I will thwart. Who is the one who is wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since 
in the wisdom of God, the world did not know God through wisdom. It pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. For Jews demand signs and Greeks seek wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles. But to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. For consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. And because of him, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption so that as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. Chapter 2. And I, when I came to you, brothers, did not come proclaiming to you the testimony of God with lofty speech and wisdom, for I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. And I was with you in weakness and fear and much trembling. And my speech and my message were not in plausible words of wisdom, but in demonstration of the spirit and of power, so that your faith might not rest in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. Yet among the mature, we do impart wisdom. Although it is not the wisdom of this age, or of the rulers of this age who are doomed to pass away. But we impart a secret and hidden wisdom of God, which God decreed before the ages for our glory. None of the rulers of this age understood this, for if they had, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. But as it is written, what no eye has seen, nor ear heard, nor the heart of man imagined, what God has prepared for those who love him. These things God has revealed to us through the Spirit, for the Spirit searches everything, even the depths of God. For who knows a person's thoughts except the Spirit of that person which is in him? So also no one comprehends the thoughts of God except the Spirit of God. Now we have received not the Spirit of the world, but the Spirit who is from God, that we might understand the things freely given by God. And we impart this in words not taught by human wisdom, but taught by the Spirit, interpreting spiritual truths to those who are spiritual. The natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, 
for they are folly to him. And he is not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. The spiritual person judges all things, but is himself to be judged by no one. For who has understood the mind of the Lord so as to, so as to instruct him? But we have the mind of Christ, the word of the Lord. We're going to, this is not necessarily uh, one of the easier texts uh, that we've encountered. It's a challenging text, but we're going to go through it step by step. And as I step through this passage, there is a natural outline, and I'll indicate the major topics that we're going to discuss so we don't get lost. And my prayer is, is by the time we're through the passage, uh, <clears throat> both the content, most importantly of the passage, and the logical process by which Paul has delivered it to us under divine inspiration will be clear to all of us. Okay, first Paul, in chapter one is a background about wisdom and then in chapter 2, Paul is going to apply that to his own preaching. He's going to talk about what saving wisdom is, and he's going to talk about how it applies to us. So we're going to start with the background. So in chapter 1, Paul starts out by talking in general about the preaching of the cross and wisdom. In verse 17, For Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel and not with words of eloquent wisdom, lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power. Okay, first some background here. What Paul was responding to in this, in this excursion is, is in Corinth, there was a controversy that had been reported to him while he was in Ephesus. People were aligning behind various personalities. Uh, some people were aligning behind Paul, some people were aligning behind Apollos, and some people were aligning behind Peter, although I don't know whether Peter was actually ever in, uh, in Corinth. He was, certainly, he was certainly known in that part of the world. So people were aligning behind these people, and, and the world of Corinth at the time was a society that valued fancy preaching and rhetoric, almost, almost to the point that, that it valued, uh, it, it valued the, the showiness of, of a speech over, over the content of that speech. And this is what Paul is warning against. And so Paul is going to shift the focus to preaching the gospel. He's going to shift the focus from style to content, and that's really what motivates him here. Moving on then to verse 18. For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. One of the two most important verses I'm going to be preaching this morning. I'm going to read it one more time, and then I'm going to turn it around a little bit. For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. 
it's a surprising verse because one would ex have expected Paul to have written, for the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is wisdom. But he doesn't say that. He doesn't say it is wisdom. He says it is the power of the cross. And it is the power of the cross that drives saving wisdom. Why was the cross folly at this particular point in time? The cross was despicable, absolutely despicable in the ancient world. In fact, Cicero, a leader in Rome who incidentally was a famous orator, actually wrote one of the two big books on rhetoric that were commonly used at this time, Cicero wrote, the very word of the cross should be removed far, not only from the person of a Roman citizen, but from his thoughts, his eyes, and his ears. And so this is why the cross was seen as folly in the ancient world. It was, it was off-putting, it was off-putting within the context of this worldly logic and this worldly wisdom. Verse 19, for it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and the discernment of the discerning I will thwart. Where is the one who is wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has God not made foolish the wisdom of this world? Well, first, in verse 20, uh, <clears throat> where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Where is the wise? Paul makes it absolutely clear that he's talking to both Jews and Greeks in this context. He's, he's talking to everyone. And in verse 19, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and the discernment of the discerning I will thwart. Those are quoted from the passage in Isaiah that we, uh, one of our readings this morning. And so they're words that were given by the Lord to, to the prophet. God frustrates and ultimately turns the wisdom of those whose hearts are far from him into folly, folly. Moving on then to verse 21, we're gonna move through this first section pretty quickly. For since in the wisdom of God, the world did not know God through wisdom, it pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. For Jews demanded signs and Greeks seek wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles. But to those who are called both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than men and the weakness of God is stronger than men. So it is all about the wisdom of God, not the wisdom of man. And most importantly, man cannot know God through earthly wisdom. This is a powerful passage, and it is powerful in part because the logic 
the very logic in this passage is incomprehensible to us if we read it carefully. For here we have a perfect juxtaposition of human responsibility and divine sovereignty. In verse 21, those who believe are saved. That's the human responsibility side of the equation. But then in verse 24, Christ becomes both a transformative power and the wisdom of God to those who are called. Paul puts the two together, he juxtaposes them, and both are true. Don't try to understand it, it's, it's not within the scope of human logic, but it is the truth. Paul is not rejecting signs in general, he's only rejecting those signs that would contradict the need for a suffering servant. So when, when he talks about the Jews demanding signs, you know, Paul recognizes the importance of signs, but context is everything. For example, in Romans 15, 19, Paul wrote, by the power of signs and wonders, by the power of the Spirit of God, so that from Jerusalem all the way around to Illyricum, I have fulfilled the mystery of the gospel of Christ. So, so Paul is not rejecting signs here. It's, that's one of the nuances of this passage. Nor is Paul rejecting wisdom in general, and we'll get there. He's only rejecting the power of wisdom that comes from man and not from the Holy Spirit to bring about our salvation. And then I'm going to move through this section quickly. Paul then moves on in verse 6 to talk about the calling or status of the Corinthians. For consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God, choose what is, God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. Chose what is weak to shame the strong, and so forth. Okay? In this particular passage, the word calling, uh, it's, not like, it's not like being called to salvation. The calling ref in this context refers to the Corinthians' actual status in society. Okay? Uh, and Corinth was a society that valued status and honor. And here's the problem. When members of the Corinthian church attempted to align themselves with Paul or Apollos, they demonstrated that they were seeking higher status, though most of them were of lower status. And the other, thing, other important thing about this particular section is that the Greco-Roman world uh, in Paul's day was an honor-shame culture here. And so when we read repeatedly in this passage about shame, Okay. That shame is eternal salvation. It's eternal damnation, excuse me. And that's the background. That brings us to chapter 2, finally. But with that background, uh, Paul's logic in chapter 2 is going, is going to be a lot easier to understand. 
there are two big sections of chapter 2. Uh, Paul is going to be talking about his own preaching, uh, how he avoided rhetoric and centered on the cross. And then in the second section, starting in verse uh, 6, Paul is going to explain how he doesn't set aside wisdom, but saving wisdom derives from revelation. And the first five, ver five verses of chapter 2, <clears throat> arguably one of the most important passages in the Bible as, as pertains to preaching, Paul is going to talk about the content of his preaching in verses 1 and 2, the form of his preaching in verses 3 and 4, and then the reason for both this particular form and content in verse 5. And I, when I came to you, brothers, did not come proclaiming to you the testimony of God with lofty speech and wisdom, for I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. Notice how Paul is distinguishing himself here from showy orators. And the content of his message was extraordinarily plain to those who were called. But when I say extraordinarily plain, plain is anything but simple here. One can spend a lifetime thinking about the cross of Christ. And then as to the form of Paul's preaching, and I was with you in weakness, in fear, in much trembling. And my speech and my message were not in plausible words of wisdom, but in demonstration of the Spirit and power. The form of Paul's preaching is therefore consistent with the content. Anybody who understands Jesus finished work on the cross is anything but arrogant. And that is precisely what Paul's style of preaching is like in form. And then verse 5 gives the reason for both this form and content. So that your faith might not rest on the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. And this single verse summarizes this entire extended passage that we're talking about today. And if we take this passage and we compare it with Proverbs chapter 1, verse 7, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. Fools despise wisdom and instruction. There we have it. There we have the ultimate question. And the ultimate question is, whom shall I fear? Am I to fear man or am I to fear God? And that's the first section of chapter 2. So Paul is talking about the form and content of his preaching, and he puts it all together. And then Paul is going to move on in what is perhaps the deepest section of this passage. 
He's not going to set aside wisdom, but he's going to point out that saving wisdom derives from revelation. Verse 6 starts off with, yet among the mature, we do not impart wisdom. Paul really does preach wisdom. That is, wisdom that saves. However, it is received by mature believers. If we skip ahead to a passage that's going to add to the context of this passage, we can understand a little bit about what Paul means by mature here. Okay, if we go to 1 Corinthians 3, verses 1 through 3, But I, brothers, could not address you as spiritual people, but as people of the flesh, as infants in Christ. I fed you with milk, not solid food. For you were not ready for it, and even now you are not ready, for you are still of the flesh. For while there is jealousy and strife among you, are you not of the flesh? and behaving only in a human way? Yeah, yeah. And we've heard this before. You know, there's a very similar passage in, uh, in, in Hebrews uh, chapter 5. I won't read the passage, but again, it's, it's this comparison with, with, with being perhaps new believers, but, you know, you know believing, being, being children, being... Uh, yet weaned of the newness of our Christian conversion, if you will, because Paul is truly addressing Christians in this context. The bottom line is that there is indeed wisdom, but Christians need time, all of us, I, I need time to fully grasp the infinite depths of the wisdom of the cross. So saving wisdom is indeed preached to mature believers, and moreover, this saving wisdom is of supernatural origin. So moving on to the second half of verse 6, although it is not a wisdom of this age, or of the rulers of this age who are doomed to pass away, but we impart a secret wisdom of God, which God decreed before the ages for our glory. Not of the root, not none of the rulers of this age understood this, for if they had, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. But as it is written, what no eye has seen, nor ear heard, nor the heart of man imagined, what God has prepared for those who love him. So, if worldly wisdom, which includes, for example, uh, science and even the best of science, medicine for example, that preserves human lives, even this is going to be useless and irrelevant when we get to heaven. You know, it, it passes away. Uh, there, there is a, a very important verse in this section. Uh, None of the rulers of this age understood it, for if they had, they would not have crucified the Lord of our glory. This is precisely the message Paul is trying to explain. Remember that Jesus said from the cross, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. This is precisely the point. The rulers who were implicated 
in the crucifixion of Jesus, they relied on worldly wisdom and practical wisdom, not the wisdom of God. This is the point that Paul is trying to make. And then <clears throat> the Holy Spirit is the way that saving wisdom is revealed. And this we get to in verse 10. These things God has revealed to us through the Spirit. For the Spirit searches everything, even the depths of God. For who knows a person's thoughts except the Spirit of that person which is in him? So also no one comprehends the thoughts of God except the Spirit of God. Now we have received not the spirit of the world, but the spirit who is from God, that we might understand the things freely given by God. And we impart this in words not taught by human wisdom, but taught by the spirit, interpreting spiritual truths to those who are spiritual. I probably I should comment in passing that at this particular point, Paul's use of the word spiritual, it's not, it's not the same that we use it in this day and age. This is, you know, Paul's not talking about, I'm a spiritual person, you know. I, I read X book on New Age theology, and, and then I read this thing too, and this, and this self-help guide, and this book to getting rich. That's not what being spiritual is all about here. Being spiritual is having the Holy Spirit. And that's all that Paul means by being spiritual, okay? But I'm gonna summarize this passage because it's complicated. Just as a person's inner thoughts are hidden from others, the wisdom of God is hidden except if the Holy Spirit, who alone searches the depths of God, reveals it to us, okay? The Holy Spirit has to reveal it to us. It is only through the Holy Spirit, not the wisdom of the world, that we are able to understand the things that are freely given to us by God. I want to comment just in passing that there is a very deep and complex connection between these verses and much of chapter 8 of Romans. I'll, I'll give you just one example. Uh, if, if we go to Romans 8, verses 5 and 6, for those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh, but those who live according to the Spirit set their minds on the things of the Spirit. For to set the mind on the flesh is death, but to set the mind on the Spirit, and think saving wisdom here, is life and peace. And there's much more to be said about the connections between this paragraph and Romans 8, but that would, that would, be, uh, that would be a message in itself. <clears throat> Finally, Paul closes this, this, this chapter with, with two great ideas. First, the, reception, the, the recipients of this revelation are spiritual persons, and as a result of this revelation, believers have the mind of Christ. So, the natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are folly to him, and he is not able to understand them, because they are spiritually discerned. 
What we're saying here, verses 14 and 15, believers have all that they need from the Holy Spirit to understand the crucifixion and resurrection of Christ. But Christ-centered wisdom, this Christ-centered wisdom, will remain a mystery to outsiders. And then, finally, and even perhaps shockingly, as a result of this revelation, believers have the mind of Christ. That statement, if you think about it, is almost incomprehensible almost incomprehensibly good. However, we still have no reason to boast since we lack any native capacity for discerning the mind of the Lord. We know the Lord's thoughts only through the Holy Spirit. I'll close, I'll close then with three quick applications of this passage. Number one, wisdom that matters comes from God. God will destroy the wisdom of the wise and thwart the discernment of the discerning. It is so ironic that the cross of Christ reverses everything and turns nonsense into sense. We cannot know the Lord through earthly wisdom, but only through the Holy Spirit. Said better, if the creativity and brilliance of human beings led to salvation, praise would belong to the wisest and most gifted human beings. The message of the cross reverses and undercuts the expectations of human beings. Weakness becomes the conduit through which, through which strength is conveyed. And what seems to be foolish the message of the cross becomes the vehicle by which wisdom is transmitted. I'm, I'm quoting a commentator there. That's, that's too good for me to write on my own. Okay. Number two, the quarreling in the church of Corinth that resulted from following Apollos, Paul, or Peter, whoever was the best speaker was fear of man and ultimately pride on the part of the followers. Prideful divisions in the church, especially by persons in leadership positions, imply a lack of godly wisdom and a super abundance of folly. Just hear the irony there. People who are new to a church or who see a church from the outside looking in, frequently notice these divisions or folly first. And so what does that tell us? Simply stated, Satan has a big cash cow here and he's not going to let go of it anytime soon. And my third and final application, let, let's return to that picture of the cross that I tried to paint at the beginning. Like those who were closest to Jesus and saw him die on the cross, our lives as Christians are changed forever. We are interconnected and similar in all of the ways that matter the most. 
Just as John, the beloved apostle, adopted Jesus' mother Mary, we are adopted as daughters and sons into the family of God. We are family. By God's grace, we even share the mind of Christ. We are, in this remarkable sense, we are all the same. Finally, we are all on a lifelong journey to the same glorious, eternal destination. Let me pray for us. Heavenly Father, I thank thee, O Father, Lord of heaven and earth, because thou hast hid these things from the wise and prudent, and has revealed them unto babes. Even so, Father, for so it seemed good in thy sight. O Father, bring us to the foot of the cross of Jesus. Humble us. Let us not lose sight of it every year, day, hour, and second that thou hast graciously given us to live. Amen.